Part 2 of Chapter 2 of The Gospel of Life, Pope John Paul II. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. The gift of eternal life. The life which the Son of God came to give to human beings cannot be reduced to mere existence in time. The life which was always in him and which is the light of men consists in being begotten of God and sharing in the fullness of his love. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Sometimes Jesus refers to this life which he came to give simply as life, and he presents being born of God as a necessary condition if man is to attain the end for which God has created him. Unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To give this life is the real object of Jesus's mission. He is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Thus can he truly say, he who follows me will have the light of life. At other times, Jesus speaks of eternal life. Here, the adjective does more than merely evoke a perspective which is beyond time. The life which Jesus promises and gives is eternal because it is a full participation in the life of the eternal one. Whoever believes in Jesus and enters into communion with him has eternal life because he hears from Jesus the only words which reveal and communicate to his existence the fullness of life. These are the words of eternal life, which Peter acknowledges in his confession of faith. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus himself, addressing the Father in the great priestly prayer, declares what eternal life consists in. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know God and his Son is to accept the mystery of the loving communion of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit into one's own life, which even now is open to eternal life because it shares in the life of God. Eternal life is therefore the life of God himself and at the same time the life of the children of God. As they ponder this unexpected and inexpressible truth which comes to us from God and Christ, believers cannot fail to be filled with ever new wonder and unbounded gratitude. They can say in the words of the Apostle John, See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Here the Christian truth about life becomes most sublime. The dignity of this life is linked not only to its beginning, to the fact that it comes from God, but also to its final end, to its destiny of fellowship with God in knowledge and love of him. In light of this truth, St. Irenaeus qualifies and completes his praise of man. The glory of God is indeed man, living man, but the life of man consists in the vision of God. 
immediate consequences arise from this for human life in its earthly state, in which, for that matter, eternal life already springs forth and begins to grow. Although man instinctively loves life because it is a good, this love will find further inspiration and strength and new breadth and depth in the divine dimensions of this good. Similarly, the love which every human being has for life cannot be reduced simply to a desire to have sufficient space for self-expression and for entering into relationships with others. Rather, it develops in a joyous awareness that life can become the place where God manifests himself, where we meet him and enter into communion with him. The life which Jesus gives in no way lessens the value of our existence in time. It takes it and directs it to its final destiny. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. From man in regard to his fellow man, I will demand an accounting. Reverence and love for every human life. Man's life comes from God. It is his gift, his image and imprint, a sharing in his breath of life. God, therefore, is the sole Lord of this life. Man cannot do with it as he wills. God himself makes this clear to Noah after the flood. For your own life blood, too, I will demand an accounting. And from man in regard to his fellow man, I will demand an accounting for human life. The biblical text is concerned to emphasize how the sacredness of life has its foundation in God and in his creative activity. For God made man in his own image. Human life and death are thus in the hands of God, in his power. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind, exclaims Job. The Lord brings to death and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. He alone can say, it is I who bring both death and life. But God does not exercise this power in an arbitrary and threatening way, but rather as part of his care and loving concern for his creatures. If it is true that human life is in the hands of God, it is no less true that these are loving hands, like those of a mother who accepts, nurtures, and takes care of her child. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a child quieted at its mother's breast, like a child that is quieted is my soul. Thus, Israel does not see in the history of peoples and in the destiny of individuals the outcome of mere chance or of blind fate, but rather the results of a loving plan by which God brings together all the possibilities of life and opposes the powers of death arising from sin. God did not make death, and he does not delight in the death of the living, for he created all things that they might exist. The sacredness of life gives rise to its inviolability, written from the beginning in man's heart, in his conscience. The question, what have you done, which God addresses to Cain after he has killed his brother Abel, interprets the experience of every person. In the depths of his conscience, man is always reminded of the inviolability of life, his own life and that of others, as something which does not belong to him, because it is the property and gift of God the Creator and Father. The commandment regarding the inviolability of human life 
reverberates at the heart of the ten words in the covenant of Sinai. In the first place, that commandment prohibits murder. You shall not kill, Exodus 20, 13. Do not slay the innocent and righteous, Exodus 23, 7. But as is brought out in Israel's later legislation, it also prohibits all personal injury inflicted on another. Of course, we must recognize that in the Old Testament, this sense of the value of life, though already quite marked, does not yet reach the refinement found in the Sermon on the Mount. This is apparent in some aspects of the current penal legislation, which provided for severe forms of corporal punishment and even the death penalty. But the overall message, which the New Testament will bring to perfection, is a forceful appeal for respect for the inviolability of physical life and the integrity of the person. It culminates in the positive commandment, which obliges us to be responsible for our neighbor as for ourselves. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18 The commandment, you shall not kill, included and more fully expressed in the positive command of love for one's neighbor, is reaffirmed in all its force by the Lord Jesus. To the rich young man who asks him, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Jesus replies, If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he quotes as the first of these, You shall not kill. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus demands from his disciples a righteousness which surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, also with regard to respect for life. You have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. By his words and actions, Jesus further unveils the positive requirements of the commandment regarding the inviolability of life. These requirements were already present in the Old Testament, where legislation dealt with protecting and defending life when it was weak and threatened. In the case of foreigners, widows, orphans, the sick and the poor in general, including children in the womb. With Jesus, these positive requirements assume new force and urgency and are revealed in all their breadth and depth. They range from caring for the life of one's brother, whether a blood brother, someone belonging to the same people, or a foreigner living in the land of Israel, to showing concern for the stranger, even to the point of loving one's enemy. A stranger is no longer a stranger for the person who must become a neighbor to someone in need, to the point of accepting responsibility for his life as the parable of the Good Samaritan shows so clearly. Even an enemy ceases to be an enemy for the person who is obliged to love him, to do good to him, and to respond to his immediate needs promptly and with no expectation of repayment. The height of this love is to pray for one's enemy. By so doing, we achieve harmony with the providential love of God. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Thus, the deepest element of God's commandment to protect human life is the requirement to show reverence and love for every person and the life of every person. This is the teaching which the Apostle Paul, echoing the words of Jesus, addresses to the Christians in Rome. 
The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this sentence. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Man's responsibility for life. To defend and promote life, to show reverence and love for it, is a task which God entrusts to every man, calling him as his living image to share in his own lordship over the world. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. The biblical text clearly shows the breadth and depth of the lordship which God bestows on man. It is a matter, first of all, of dominion over the earth and over every living creature, as the book of wisdom makes clear. O God of my fathers and Lord of mercy, by your wisdom you have formed man to have dominion over the creatures you have made and rule the world in holiness and righteousness. The psalmist, too, extols the dominion given to man as a sign of glory and honor from his creator. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. As one called to till and look after the garden of the world, Man has a specific responsibility toward the environment in which he lives, toward the creation which God has put at the service of his personal dignity, of his life, not only for the present, but also for future generations. It is the ecological question, ranging from the preservation of the natural habitats of the different species of animals and of other forms of life to human ecology, properly speaking, which finds in the Bible clear and strong a clear and strong ethical direction, leading to a solution which respects the good, great good of life of every life. In fact, the dominion granted to man by the Creator is not an absolute power, nor can one speak of a freedom to use and misuse, or to dispose of things as one pleases. The limitation imposed from the beginning by the Creator himself, and expressed symbolically by the prohibition not to eat of the fruit of the tree, shows clearly enough that when it comes to the natural world, we are subject not only to biological laws, but also to moral ones, which cannot be violated with impunity. A certain sharing by man in God's lordship is also evident in the specific responsibility which he is given for human life as such. It is a responsibility which reaches its highest point in the giving of life through procreation by man and woman in marriage. As the Second Vatican Council teaches, God himself, who said, it is not good for man to be alone, and who made man from the beginning male and female, wished to share with man a certain special participation in his own creative work. Thus, he blessed male and female, saying, increase and multiply. By speaking of a certain special participation of man and woman in the creative work of God, the Council wishes to point out that having a child 
is an event which is deeply human and full of religious meaning, insofar as it involves both the spouses, who form one flesh, and God, who makes himself present. As I wrote in my letter to families, when a new person is born of the conjugal union of the two, he brings with him into the world a particular image and likeness of God himself. The genealogy of the person is inscribed in the very biology of generation. In affirming that the spouses as parents cooperate with God the Creator in conceiving and giving birth to a new human being, we are not speaking merely with reference to the laws of biology. Instead, we wish to emphasize that God himself is present in human fatherhood and motherhood quite differently than he is present in all other instances of begetting on earth. Indeed, God alone is the source of that image and likeness which is proper to the human being as it was received at creation. Begetting is the continuation of creation. This is what the Bible teaches in direct and eloquent language when it reports the joyful cry of the first woman, the mother of all the living. Aware that God has intervened, Eve exclaims, I have begotten a man with the help of the Lord. In procreation, therefore, through the communication of life from parents to child, God's own image and likeness is transmitted, thanks to the creation of the immortal soul. The beginning of the book of the genealogy of Adam expresses it in this way. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and called them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness after his image, and named him Seth. It is precisely in their role as co-workers with God who transmits his image to the new creature, that we see the greatness of couples who are ready to cooperate with the love of the Creator and the Savior, who through them will enlarge and enrich his own family day by day. This is why the Bishop Amphilochius extolled holy matrimony, chosen and elevated above all earthly gifts, as the begetter of humanity, the creator of images of God. Thus, a man and woman joined in matrimony become partners in a divine undertaking. Through the act of procreation, God's gift is accepted and a new life opens to the future. But over and above the specific mission of parents, the task of accepting and serving life involves everyone, and this task must be fulfilled above all towards life when it is at its weakest. It is Christ himself who reminds us of this when he asks to be loved and served in his brothers and sisters who are suffering in any way, the hungry, the thirsty, the foreigner, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned. Whatever is done to each of them is done to Christ himself. Next time, part three of chapter two.